0: You are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands, and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and we run Singer Cafe and Al Jissar Bar in Beit Zahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding, and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt, and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast, with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine, as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Thank you for tuning in again this week. This is the second episode of season 5, and last week I had a lot of nice response on the interview with Dr. Youssef about Al-Aqsa, and I would like to remind you that I produced a 9 minutes video on YouTube with footage I took personally during my visit in December. So that you can see the Dome of the Rock and the Aqsa Mosque from the inside, as well as the Marwani and the Ancient Mosque. I think it's worth doing that, so check it out on Stories from Palestine YouTube channel. Another video I worked on, and I posted it on the YouTube channel, is the video that my daughter Louise and I made during our visit to Hisham's palace in Jericho. And this week's episode is an episode about the beautiful Umayyad Palace and the magnificent mosaics. So I recommend that you listen to this episode and then go straight to YouTube to watch the 5 Minutes video so that you have a much better idea of what it looks like. So Hisham's Palace has been in the news a lot in the last weeks because the mosaics have recently been renovated and they are now covered and protected by a special shield. And a lot of attention went to the palace, even from the world media, because the mosaics are one of the largest mosaic carpets from ancient times in such a good condition worldwide. The mosaics cover an area of about 900 square meters, so you can imagine how impressive that is. The Palestinian Tourism and Antiquities Ministry was financially supported by Japan, not only to renovate the palace and the mosaics, but also to protect it from the sun and the rain, although rain is quite sporadic in the Jordan Valley. But when it rains, it can rain really hard. It can come down in flash floods, like it did this week. But before we dive into the mosaics, let's talk a little bit about the palace itself. Who built it, when was it built, and why was it built in the middle of the desert? Let's start with when it was discovered. It was discovered in the late 19th century, rediscovered. And in that time, they discovered ruins about two kilometers north of Jericho. And the first excavations that were done there were carried out between 1935 and 1948, and they were done by the Palestinian Department of Antiquities under the direction of a Palestinian archaeologist called Dimitri Baramki. And he worked with a British archaeologist called Robert Hamilton. And Dimitri Baramki found an inscription with the name Hisham. And Hisham was the son of Abdel Malik ibn Marwan, the one who built the Dome of the Rock, as you heard in the previous podcast episode. So after finding the name of Hisham, the palace was attributed to Hisham ibn Abd al-Malik, the son of Abd al-Malik, and they dated it to the period of his reign. He was a caliph between 724 and 743. And so the ruins of the palace were named after him, Hisham's palace. But after longer time of more excavations and more research... There are scholars now who believe that maybe Hisham started building the palace, but he didn't finish it. It was probably the caliph who came after him, that was his nephew, Al-Walid, who finished it because if you look at the palace and if you see how much decorated it is, then you would know, knowing that Hisham was a very modest and religious man, that he would probably not have... Such a decorated and embellished palace made for himself. So now people think that it was started by Hisham, but that it was finished by Al-Walid. And I will speak a little bit more about Al-Walid later on, because he is known as the playboy of the Umayyads. And also one of the most impressive parts of the mosaics is dated back to his reign which was also very short, by the way. He only reigned for about a year, and then he was killed. So these caliphs, Hisham and his father, Abd al-Malik, and his nephew, al-Walid, and several others of that time frame, are from the Umayyad dynasty. They ruled between 661 and 750. So the Umayyad dynasty, let's say a few words about them. In the pre-Islamic period... The Umayyads were a prominent clan. They were of the Quraysh tribe of Mecca and they were named after the founder of the clan and his name was Umayyad ibn Shams. So that's where Umayyad comes from, from the name of the clan founder, Umayya. Originally, this clan opposed the message of Prophet Muhammad but eventually they embraced Islam and that happened before death of Prophet Muhammad in 632. After Prophet Muhammad died, there were four caliphs who are called the Rightly Guided Caliphs. In Arabic, that is the Rashidun. And the Rashidun were Abu Bakr, Umar ibn al-Khattab, Uthman, and Ali. Now, from the Umayyad clan, there was a governor, so he was an important man in that period, and his name was Muawiyah. And Mu'awiyah fought the first Muslim civil war in 661. And he established the Umayyad Caliphate with the capital in Damascus. And he ruled over the entire Islamic world at that time. And this was the first time in the history of Islam that there was a dynasty. So the rights were now given from father to son to be the caliph. So this is in very short about the Umayyads. They came after the Rashidun and they were later followed by the Abbasids and then the Fatimids. The Umayyads, they were very famous builders. We already know that they built the Dome of the Rock and the Aqsa Mosque. These are great examples. But they also built Hisham's Palace in that time. And Hisham's Palace is one of the examples of what is called the Desert Palaces. They are famous. They are not only in Palestine, also in today's Syria and Jordan, but we will focus on the palace in Jericho. So what were these desert palaces used for? Why do you build a palace in the desert? Well, first of all, the palaces, they all have a big central courtyard with rooms around them. And there, not only the caliph and his family could stay, but there was place to host guests. There was a big reception hall where they could receive people, their guests. There was a bathhouse with the same system as we know from the Roman time, with a cold room, a warm room and a hot room and an underground heating system, a hypocaust. And the palaces had a mosque or a prayer hall so they could carry out the religious prayers. So in a way, we can consider these palaces as Retreats. It wasn't the place where the caliph would live all year round. It was more like a winter palace where he could escape the cold winter time and the busy city life, probably, and he could enjoy some luxury in peace and quiet. But that wasn't the only reason why these palaces were built. The excavators here found that the palaces also served as agricultural estates. They had a water system that brought water from springs to irrigate the estate so that they could grow crops, and they did a lot of hunting. Here at Hisham's palace, they brought the water from Wadi Nuema, from two springs called Ain Duq and Ain Nuema, and these are springs at the foot of Jabal Kuruntul, or better known as the Mount of Temptations. And I explained in a previous podcast about Jericho that the Arabic name Kuruntul comes from the Latin name Quaranta, which was the name that the crusaders gave to the mountain because they believed that this was the mountain where Jesus spent 40 days in the desert when he was tempted by the devil. Quaranta, 40, the Arabic corruption of that is Kuruntul, Jabal Kuruntul. So the water came from the springs near Jabal Kuruntu. It was brought to Hisham's palace through an irrigation system, through channels, and then stored in a large plastered reservoir. And they also found a very large grape press. I'm not sure if they drank only grape juice, or maybe they made dibbis with the grapes, just like we do until today in Palestine, Or maybe the Umayyads did produce wine, which doesn't seem likely if they were religious Muslims, but who knows, they also received guests and maybe they received leaders of local nomadic tribes that did drink wine. Because in that area, there were many Bedouin tribes and they had their flocks, they had their own lifestyle, their own territory. And it's known that these tribes would regularly attack and rob villages and towns and travelers. So in order to appease the tribal leaders to make deals and relationships with them, they would invite them to these palaces in the desert to create like a friendly relationship with them. So that is another reason why these palaces were built in the desert. Now for visiting Hisham's palace, something that you should really put on your agenda if you are coming to Palestine, Hisham's palace is also on the tentative list ...for registration as UNESCO World Heritage. So it is a very important site. If you want to visit it, you have to realize that it is a little bit out of the town center. If you love walking, then I think you can walk there in probably between 20 to 30 minutes. But it's often very hot in Jericho. It's at least 10 degrees warmer than in Jerusalem... So you have to make sure that you don't do that when it's super hot on a hot summer day. In that case, I would say get a taxi ride from the city center. That probably doesn't cost you more than 10 to 15 shekels. And the entrance fee to the park is also about 10 shekels, if I remember correctly. And then when you come in, you can first watch a very informative video in the information center. And I advise you to do that so that you will much better understand what the palace probably looked like because they did a beautiful virtual reconstruction of the palace. So we started like that. We watched the video and after that, we went to see the ruins of the palace. And we entered into the courtyard area. This is an open area and it used to be surrounded by four arcaded galleries. And they say that probably the ground floor had stables for horses and storage rooms and Maybe the servants lived there and the upper floor, the second floor, was for the guests. Now, when you walk in the courtyard, you are in the open air because the only thing that remains are the side walls and they have been also renovated and built up a little bit. And it has to be said that over the centuries, many of the stones were taken from there and and used in construction of houses of local people in Jericho. So you might actually come across houses in Jericho that have been partially built by the stones of the Hisham's Palace. But when you're in the courtyard, the first thing you will see is a beautiful rosette. It's really the main eye-catcher. It's a rosette or a star that is Exhibited in the middle of the courtyard, but once upon a time, it was part of an upper window of the palace. And it fell down during the big earthquake that destroyed Hisham's palace. This earthquake is very well known in history. It is called the Galilee earthquake. It happened in 749 and many, many buildings and many Umayyad palaces were destroyed in that earthquake. Also, the Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem was destroyed and then later rebuilt. But it seems that Hisham's palace was never reconstructed, although after the Umayyads, when the Abbasid dynasty came, they did use part of the agricultural estate. So the stone rosette that used to be part of the decorative window was repaired by Palestinian masons, and it has now become one of the most famous symbols of the city of Jericho. From the central courtyard, there is stairs that goes down into a small room, about 30 square meters room. And that room was used in hot times to find a cool room. It was called the Sirdap. And it has benches on both sides. And there is a water spout with fresh water so the visitors could relax there, they could cool down, they could enjoy each other's company. And the floor has beautifully renovated mosaics. But the big mosaic carpets are in the reception hall. And on your way to the reception hall, you first pass by part of an old mosque and you can clearly recognize the Mihrab. The Mihrab is the prayer niche. It shows the direction towards Mecca, the direction towards which the Muslims have to pray. And they call that the prayer direction, the Qibla. And then you enter into the main hall. The main hall is now covered for protection of the mosaics. And you walk over ramps that lead you all around the hall at a height of probably two to three meters above the mosaic floor. So you don't walk on the floor itself, but you walk above it and you have a full view of the mosaics. I think the room is about 30 by 30 meters. And it used to have a roof with vaults and domes. They were made of brick. And then the domes were supported by 16 big stone piers. So there are four rows of four piers, and these are also renovated, standing up straight to about probably four to five meters high, I estimate. And these would carry the ceiling or the roof of the building. The whole hall used to be decorated with very impressive stucco work. There were also stone reliefs and statues, and many of these can now be seen in East Jerusalem in the Rockefeller Museum. And the Rockefeller Museum was the first Palestinian archaeological museum in Palestine. It was called PAM, Palestinian Archaeological Museum. It originated actually from the late Ottoman time. And then it became more organized in the British Mandate period, especially because there were a lot of British archaeologists that came to Palestine in that period. They did a lot of excavations and a lot of their findings were brought to the British Museum in London. But some of them ended up in the Palestinian Archaeological Museum. And then it was named after Rockefeller, the philanthropist from America, who gave a lot of money towards the museum. So they named the museum after him. So the great audience hall of Hisham's palace had beautifully painted frescoes. It had all this stucco work. It had statues. And then it had these beautiful mosaics. And it is interesting to see that the influence for the decoration program in the palace was a mixture of influences from the Persians, the Sassanians on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the typical Byzantine motives, the decorations that you saw in the Byzantine Empire. So there is a mix of that in Hisham's palace, And another interesting aspect is that there was use of floral and animal figures. And this is something we don't usually see in Islamic art, because usually it only consists of non-figurative art. But the mosaics, the floor of the audience hall, that is only non-figurative. So let's now talk about the mosaics. What are mosaics? So the definition of mosaics is this. It's a picture or a pattern that is produced by arranging together small colored pieces of hard material, such as stone, tile or glass. And in Palestine, they found mosaics dating back as early as the Hellenistic period, that is the Greek period, which was around the 3rd and 2nd century before Christ. Most famous are, of course, the Byzantine time mosaics, and you find them all over Palestine, especially in houses that belonged to rich people, villas, but also in synagogues, in the many, many churches that the Byzantines build, and also in public buildings. And they were still used, the mosaics, in the early Islamic period, especially in the time of the Umayyads, but also later in the time of the Abbasids and the Fatimids. They used the mosaics for floors, but also to decorate walls, for example. And beautiful examples of that you can see in Ramla. And remember, Ramla is the only city that was built under the early Islamic Arab rule. And I spoke about that in a previous episode which was the episode Guided Tour from Jerusalem to Jaffa. And it was actually the brother of Hisham, Suleiman, who built Ramla city. He probably saw how his dad had built the Dome of the Rock and the aqsa Mosque that was finished by one of his brothers, and then his other brother built Hisham's palace, so he also wanted to do something great and he built a whole city that was built in the sand near to the coast. And therefore it was called Ramle, because Ramel is sand in Arabic. There is another ruin of an Omayyad palace in Palestine. It is actually now also on the nomination list to be UNESCO World Heritage, or on the tentative list. And it is called Girbet al-Minya. It is in the Galilee. It's very close to the lake of Galilee before you reach Tabgha. And it is now in a national park But it is not very well preserved at all. And this is one of the strong examples where you can see that the Israeli authorities do not care about archaeological sites when they do not have a direct link with the Jewish history. So we see that with many of the Muslim archaeological sites that they are not well preserved, even actually with some of the Christian Byzantine churches. But coming back to the mosaics in Hisham's palace. So it is estimated that there are in total... ...about 5 million pieces of what they call tessera... ...the small pieces of stone used in the mosaic carpets. There are 38 different mosaic carpets in the audience hall. Each one of them is decorated differently... ...mainly with geometric shapes. In the middle of the hall... There is an incredible circle-shaped mosaic that when you look at it, the circles seem to be moving. It is fascinating. There are many colors. They used mainly local stone. So, for example, red stone, which they brought from near Jerusalem. The pink stone they brought from Bethlehem. And then white stone from Hebron. There are two distinct shades of white were used. And then the darker black stone comes from near the Nabi Musa shrine. And is a famous type of stone that they found in that area. And it is believed by scholars that these 38 mosaic panels were basically reflecting the way that the ceiling was constructed. So the circular mosaics would be placed under the domes and the squared mosaic panels were in between, separating them. And if you are really interested in a more detailed description and to see some visuals close up of the mosaics, then I would like to refer you to an article that was published by Dr. Hamdan Taha and Donald Whitcomb. And you can find the link to that article in the show notes. It gives you more background on the mosaics, but it's too detailed for the podcast. The most beautiful mosaic, in my humble opinion, and the most famous one is the mosaic on the wall, not on the floor, but on the wall of the diwan. And the diwan was the special guest room of the caliph. This is where he would receive his visitors privately, not in the big audience hall, but in this small diwan. The diwan had benches on both sides. And when you entered, the first thing you saw behind the caliph was this big mosaic of the tree of life. And in the middle of the tree of life, you can see some fruits that look like oranges. And then on the left, you see two gazelles and they are grazing peacefully, eating from the grass. But on the right side, you see a lion attacking another gazelle. Now, this is often explained as a symbol of good and evil. While there are also other scholars that think that the Caliph was trying to send a message across to the visitor that if you are nice with me, then you will live in peace. But don't you dare to oppose me because then you know what will happen to you. But I read a very interesting article by Doris Behrens Abu Saif. And I will include the link in the show notes because it's an interesting article to read if you're interested. In this article, and I'll try to be short, she has another, maybe more romantic explanation of this mosaic. So she first emphasizes that this is the only mosaic in the palace with a depiction of animals and a tree. So it was figurative art. And this means that it was not a coincidence that it was in this room. There was a deeper meaning. There was a message And then she reminds us that the Caliph al-Walid, the one who served only for one year but built most of Hisham's palace, he was the one who embellished the palace. Probably he had this room made. He was also known as, what I said in the beginning, as a playboy. He was quite an eccentric man. He was an athlete. He was a hunter. And in the same time, he used to write poetry. And In his poetry, he describes often women as gazelles. So in her interpretation, the lion would represent him, the caliph, al-Walid, hunting for gazelles. And this is symbolizing his playboy character rather than him as a real hunter. And she also draws our attention to the fact that the gazelle is being attacked And she compares that to other depictions of similar scenes from ancient times where you would see that the lion would be fighting a more sizable animal, a bigger animal, usually a bull or at least a deer of the same size as the lion because they wanted to make it appear that the combat was between equal powers, not between a lion and a small gazelle. And that was in ancient times, so why did they change the idea in this mosaic? Another big difference with older depictions of hunting scenes is that the attacked animal usually is alone and is very frightened and is trying to run for his life. Well, in this image, in the Diwan of the Caliph, we see two gazelles on the left side of the tree that they don't seem to be the least bothered by what is going on. They are not afraid, they are still grazing peacefully. So I would like to quote from her paper and read a, a poem from El Walid that is included in her paper, in which you can see that El Walid is writing about how the hunter becomes the lover. So this is from the paper that she wrote. Walid, as a patron of Khirbet al-Mafjar, and Khirbet al-Mafjar is the Arabic name for the Hisham's Palace ruins, as a patron of Khirbet al-Mafjar, poet... Huntsman and womanizer, he dedicated most of his poetry to wine and love. In one poem about a hunting excursion, Walid pursued an antelope, but he stopped short of killing her after he looked at her neck and her eyes, which reminded him of his beloved Salma. And this is a quote from that poem itself. We caught and would have killed an antelope that ran auspiciously to the right. But then it gently turned its eyes and looked. The very image of your look, we let it go. Were it not for our love, for you, it surely would have died. Now, little antelope, you're free and safe. So off you go, happy among the other antelopes." And then she writes, at first glance, Walid looks at an antelope and sees his prey. On the second look, however, he recognizes his beloved Salma. And then the hunter becomes the lover. I don't know, but I'm very intrigued by these sort of explanations. And of course, we will never know what the mosaic really meant for the caliph. But if you're curious to know more, you can go and read the full article. So right next to the diwan... You can see the remains of the bathhouse. And bathhouses, they used to have different rooms. It wasn't just one room. The visitors used to move between rooms that were cold, warm, and hot. And then there was also a space where they could get a good scrub or a massage. And these rooms were heated by an underground heating system. It was called a hippocaust. So the visitor used to start in the first room, which was called the frigidarium. And I think you can recognize the word fridge in there. So that was the cold room. Then they had warm rooms. There were actually two here in Hisham's Palace. They were called the tepidarium. And then there was also the hot rooms that had steam, the caldarium. And then there were two furnaces for heating the place and a communal latrine. So they used the bathrooms together. After passing through the section of the as it was called, the bathroom, you will now leave the covered protected area. So now you're going outside. And now we are on the northern part of the palace. And this is where the Umayyads first built their agricultural estate. This is where they found that huge grape press. And then after the earthquake in 749... The Umayyad rule was replaced by the Abbasid rule, and the Abbasids did not rebuild the palace. They did add a new residence, an elite residence, on the northern side, and there were houses for the servants and the farmers who worked there. There were stables for the horses and a small mosque, and when you walk around the area, you can see the ruins, the remains of that, and the wine press. Very big one. I haven't seen such a big one here before. And all the excavated houses. Now, the water for the palace and for the agricultural estate came, as I said, from five kilometers to the west. It came from the Jabal Kuruntul, or the Mount of Temptation area. And it was led through channels across the valley, the Wadi in Arabic. And at two different points, it had to be brought over Arched bridges to reach to the Hisham's palace, and then it was led to a large reservoir where it was kept. And this abundance of water in the middle of the desert perhaps gave the name to the site, Mafjar, because in Arabic it's called the ruins of Mafjar, Khirbut Mafjar, which means the flowing water. And with that said, We finished the tour around Gilbert Mavjar or Hisham's Palace in Jericho. And I invite you to go to the YouTube channel where you can watch our five minutes video that we made during our last visit. I hope you will enjoy it after listening to this episode. And you can find the link to that in the show notes as well as the links to the articles that I mentioned. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the Kofi platform all the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info that's it i hope you will tune in again next week